Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? The second Wall of Awful video has posted to Jessica McCabe's How to ADHD channel on YouTube. Go check it out. It's amazing. The link, of course, is in the show notes. And if you haven't joined the ADHD Essentials Facebook community yet, we'd love to have you. It's a group where you'll find support for parenting your child with ADHD, managing your own challenges with ADHD, and just, you know, cool people. Finally, a big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon from Ideal Video Strategies, who did the heavy lifting editing this episode. You can learn more about his work at IdealVideoStrategies.com. This is episode 70. Today, we're talking to my friend, Evan Kirstein of Progressive Growth Coaching. You can find him at ProgressiveGrowthCoaching.com. Evan is a fellow ADHD coach who also happens to be a soon-to-be dad. So in today's episode, we're talking about the changes that come with fatherhood, the way our view of love changes as we mature, focusing on the first step rather than the whole staircase, and the importance of knowing the score. All right. Let's get rolling. What does your wife do? She's doing October. So we are recording this in April. So you got a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. What kinds of changes are you anticipating? What are you doing in preparation? What does that look like? Well, we live in a small Brooklyn apartment in a brownstone. And so I have visited Ikea and I've started to recognize people that work there. <laughs> And we are Tetrising our rooms together to make sure that we have enough storage space so that the baby doesn't see the mess that we throw into my office slash spare bedroom. Is that room becoming the baby's room? Yeah, we're, we're taking the desk out. We're leaving the couch in and cribs and all that kind of fun stuff coming soon. Yes. So if that is slash was your office, right? What happens to your productivity? What happens to your office space? Because as an ADHD coach, you're, I imagine working from home a lot of the time and, and, and kind of need that office. So what's the plan? The plan is to clean up after I make a mess every time. The reality is this is what makes me the most scared in my relationship is to show my wife that I can clean up after myself after making a mess when all I've done, you know, is usually I need to see it to remember to do it, whether it is five sticky notes on one desk or sheets of lists of things that I have done and haven't done or magazine articles and bills that I want to read and pay. They're out. They're in vision. And now I have to put it in this large Ikea wardrobe when I'm done with it. I, and I don't know how that will go. 
does the IKEA wardrobe transform into a desk? Is it just a wardrobe? It, it's just a, it's a nine foot tall casket. <laughs> it is huge. It's just a big wardrobe. And we're putting filing cabinets and boxes in there. You know, I, I had a, a long table that was kind of like a farm table and I could use it to lay everything out and see everything, whether it was jewelry I needed to get fixed or cards I need to send out. It is, it is out there. It is present as well as a printer. And now we're needing to be real mobile and tactical about how we put things in the right place so that we can get to it again. So you got me thinking in all kinds of fun ways. I'm wondering if you can put something in the wardrobe that folds out. I'm almost thinking like an ironing board. Like, you know, the things you open them up and an ironing board drops out. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like beds like that and everything. And, and they do have that, but they're, they're probably around four grand unless I make it myself. And we don't want that. Plus I, I'm not really there. It, the, the wardrobe itself is in that guest room and I won't be working in the baby's room. Mm -hmm. I'll be taken out to the kitchen slash dining room or the bedroom. It's a shared space. This will be a communal space. My wife will be, you know, operating either in the same room I am when I'm trying to work with a client mm -hmm. and we'll have to talk about that and I'll have to go to more coffee shops. Uh, there will be some, some have tos with changing our world and I guess I'm preparing to be flexible where I, uh, I have a hard time being flexible. And that as, as the coach is, is also an experience where I'm working with other people that say, hey, I, I want to change or I have to change, but I don't want to change. And, and there's a lot to be said with that with transitioning. A lot of people don't want to actually transition to do what they're doing because we're afraid of doing it. We're afraid of failing. I'm afraid of of working out in the kitchen or the, the living room area because I know there will be a mess that I look at and I will be ashamed of it. I completely understand that that fear and that anxiety around I'm, I'm going to be messier than I want to be. I'm going to be messier than I'm committing to be. Mm -hmm. And that's going to breed shame and anxiety and make me feel bad about my performance and what I'm doing and also how it affects my family. Are you practicing now? Because the baby's not here yet. So are you kind of practicing the cleaning up after yourself and trying to test run the organizational structures in this time you have before October? No, but that's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find I, I overpractice things a lot when I need to prepare, whether it, I'm giving a speech or I'm packing for a weekend. Mm -hmm. I, I overthink it. And that's what I'm doing right now is I'm trying to pack in things into the room so they are so easily accessible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I need to get rid of this table in order to pack it so I can receive it again and share the space with our, our new child. And uh, I don't know if I can practice it until it's real. I think that I am going to go to default, uh, you know, I can do what I want until I have to. And then I'll, I'll have to learn those uncomfortable things. Uh, failure is going to be uncomfortable. And I'm, I'm just preparing myself to, to be flexible once I fail, to think about it, and to maybe spend more time 
my wife calls me the Evnado <laughs> after I get done with the room. <laughs> One of my nicknames is Evnado because she sees if, it, you know, like, oh, I have like night appointments and, and I'll just, I'll wreck the house on the way out. And she, she can see the line of where I went and she plays detective and guesses what I did that day. And I'm doing everything at once except cleaning up after myself. And she knows this. And when I do come home and clean, I clean up everything at once. And yeah, I'm good at it. It's just that I won't do it in the moment because what's next for me is most important. And that, that priority gets me out of the house on time. Can I poke around a little bit? Go for it. So I've got, some, I've got one particular client that I'm thinking about, but more than one client who used this strategy. I've but one who like has next leveled it. And so what he's done is he has backpacks. He happened to be a guy who spent more money than he should and had more backpacks than he needed. Mm -hmm. And so what we did was we ended up setting up different backpacks for different things that he had to do. So like he's an artist, so he's got a backpack for art. And he also was writing a thesis at one point. We've since gotten him through the thesis. That's done now. But he had a thesis backpack. And he has a kids on the go backpack. So sort of like a dad outside of the house backpack that's got toys and snacks and stuff. Mm. So they're, they're really, they're all just kits that he can grab and leave with. And depending on what he's doing that day, he can grab one, maybe two backpacks. Sometimes it's three. I try to encourage him not to have three. Um, <laughs> that's too much. But, but that might be a useful strategy for what you're doing, even within the apartment itself, because he will take a backpack. Mm. Like when he was doing the thesis, he would just bring his thesis backpack to the part of the house that he was going to be writing the thesis in. Or he'd take it to the library or the coffee shop or whatever. I love it. I love it. And being in New York, I, I, I am mobile. Uh, meeting my clients in cafes, uh, hotel lounges, and I bring with me a, a electronic keyboard that matches up to my phone mm -hmm. and, and a small notebook and that's a that's a small backpack and then I have a large one for larger things and so it, you need it because if I want to carry a, if I want to get a watermelon to my house and it is 15 pounds mm -hmm. that's a half a mile with 15 pounds in my arms and I carry a backpack for that so I have a backpack for that the way people have asked <laughs> I have a watermelon backpack <laughs> <laughs> And it, it, I, I, the dad backpack is going to be oh so useful and necessary. In the apartment, I can see fitting it in certain places and then saying, okay, I will take this range of stuff because I won't have the shelving for it, but I do have, I can, I can jam a backpack anywhere. So I, I like that. I can put a backpack on the floor of my closet or move it around with me. Then it becomes... I'm like a kid with a backpack again. I do like cool. that. I'm glad I was useful. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Even the wardrobe, you could have like a few different backpacks depending on what the job is, right? Like I th this is the Bill's backpack and this is the magazine articles I want to read backpack. Or maybe it's just a trapper keeper. I don't know. But something. I'm having I'm having a flashback <laughs> of stuffing in bills into into one folder. And my wife is, what is this? <laughs> The overflowing backpack of bills. <laughs> I mean, you want to make sure you're paying them. You don't want them to just hide in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why they're out. They're out so they can be paid. So I can have enough anxiety to look at it each time and say, now is the time right. to do it. Yeah. 
and I think there's a, there's a big part to that by anxiety as a stimulant and saying that it, it reminds me of how important it is and that I can clear this and put Aiden full on the top of this and throw it yeah. out. One of the things I've been saying recently is anxiety is the only thing we can burn for fuel and wind up with more of it when we're done. Mm-hmm. ADHD is fueled by anxiety, right? Like that's, that's kind of how we go. The trick is to balance it. It, it exacerbates it, the, the symptoms, and it distracts us, and it motivates us. I think there's a, there's a balancing act in knowing how to look at the first step and not the staircase. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's probably the trickiest thing because we're distracted by the top of the staircase. We're staring at the top every time. When I look at a menu, I look at the dessert first. I I want to know how this story is going to end. Probably the hardest part is, is saying, well, it's going to be easy if we just take the first step first. I, I think uh, speaking of food, because I'm a foodie and I get a little anxiety over food sometimes. Like, honey, when are we going to eat? It, you know, it's like two o'clock in the afternoon, and I, and I plan out dinner. I, I, I was sitting with my stepmom and she saw me with a steak the size of my forearm and she looked at me and she goes, Evan, this is not the last steak you're going to eat. Why don't you enjoy it? <laughs> <laughs> and I was reminded that, yeah, you, you know, this bite would be enjoyable if I thought about it and became more mindful. And, and so it, I, I step back to mindfulness a lot uh, when I'm feeling the anxiety over something and saying that this moment matters. Because it, it's important to slow down, right? And, and as a guy who's been there, as a guy who has kids, you are about to walk into an incredibly busy time. Mm. And you're only going to remember maybe a quarter of it. But it's the most amazing, life-changing stuff that you're going to experience. Take those times to slow down. Take those times to be like, oh, this is my kid. Like I get to just sit here and hold my kid and feed him. Or is, do you, are you having a boy, a girl? Not a lot to say until I know when this is going to be released. <laughs> okay. All right. That's fair. That's fair. We're in that, we're in that month. All right. Yeah, that's cool. Um, like with my guys, I know there were times when I would sit there and I was feeding them and I was like, this is cool. Like this is the... Those are the times when things slow down and there isn't, you don't have to keep going. You can sort of have a reason to stop. Mm-hmm. But it's also tempting to keep going anyway. It's tempting to be like, I can hold this baby and feed this baby. And at the same time, I can do something else. I can feed, I can feed the cat or I can walk on a treadmill while I hold this baby or I can pay a bill or whatever it is, like prepare some food. Maybe not like cooking. That seems like a bad <laughs> plan, but but I can like make some, some mashed potatoes or something while I, Mm -hmm. while I get going with this baby. But that's the anxiety talking. That's that push. Mm -hmm. Um, So I hope that you get to find some time to be chill with the baby and decompress because it's a big change (laughs) Mm. and not in a bad way, not in a bad way. It's just different. And that, that, that part you say different. It's the the part I know nothing of. Mm -hmm. And that's the exciting part. I've had other people's children a lot, uh, you know, being a past educator, it, it, you know, the behavior management is there that the spending time together in parallel play and, 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 you know, deescalating situations. I'm there. Uh, I think that that magical thing between there, I talked to so many parents about 
is that I can't think for my child, my child. I can't do for my child. I, I can't have an experience for my child that I want for them. They take the experience. They take the learning. And, and letting go and letting them is, is part of that path. And I, I can't wait for it to happen. I guess I have to wait. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, I, I've said this before on the podcast, I think. But uh, one of the biggest advantages that I had was having identical twins. Mm. Because there's this tendency to be like, well, I want my kid to be like this, right? Mm. And that was immediate cognitive dissonance for me. Because I was like, but they're sort of the same kid because they're identical twins. So if I want one of them to be a lawyer, then I want both of them to be a lawyer. That doesn't make any sense. That's weird. Mm -hmm. And it sort of ruined the, the expectation side for me. And I was like, I just want them to be happy and successful in mm. however they define that. And it made it made those challenges a lot easier for me part of this challenge is the story what story does your child have we imagine what story they're going to have but how does it connect with my life mm -hmm. my story what, what i want for them and i see it as twins kind of like a twin study you say well now it separates now i can say this is what i want for this one because of their personality right and so that's the the factor that that came in and it interrupted what you wanted to think versus what you now have to think because you, you the reality is how different they are from each other yeah and now i, I it turned into just responding to what they're doing right like oh that this kid's going to be like this this kid's going to be like that not because i want them to be that way hmm. but because that's how they're behaving and i see how that pattern plays out and if their behavior changes and the pattern changes then the behavior then my expectations change too hmm. But with one kid, it's a little trickier. It's a little easier to be like, I have this. So, um, so I'm excited for you. Like you're, you're in for a pretty, a pretty wild ride. And, and, and I hope it doesn't disrupt stuff too much because hearing you like, well, I'm, everything is already feeling a little mm. chaotic because now you got to clear a farm table out of your apartment and mm. stuff everything that was on it into a, into a wardrobe. <laughs> I think there's the other side of excitement over you know, building more in my company, uh, creating, creating more name for myself and everything there, mm -hmm. there's a push there too. And, and it, the reason you're doing this, you know, I'm, I'm not alone anymore. When I get on a plane, I get more scared. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was 18, I got on a plane. I was like, it'd be crazy if we crashed, dude. <laughs> like I would tell my friends about it or I'd text it to them on the way down you know this is like I'd get famous oh but now it's like I don't I you know like I don't want anything to happen mm -hmm. that you know and I, I think about that now that I'm married I, I had I had two weddings I had a I had a marriage uh, I married my wife and in April so our anniversary is actually next week on April 20th oh congratulations thank you and then we had a wedding in Germany, as she is German, and I wanted to have my grandmother, who was ill at the time, to, to go to the first wedding in Florida. Mm -hmm. And then the second wedding was everybody. And we had 80 pre people, and people came over from the States, and a lot of the family were there. And doing it for them, for, for, you know, for this room, it's, it, it was to to remember this kind of spice of life, the people that are in us that taught us how to love. Mm -hmm. And it, it, as I get older, there's a value system for who our friends are and what they've given to us and what we give to them. 
how we serve each other as as love, it, it's growing. Uh, I'm I'm surprised by that maturity in myself. Uh, that you know, like that that these stages of life, not just the marriage, but the 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 value of love between people is really growing. In what way? What do you what are you seeing? What do you mean by that? The spaces we make for each other, uh, the places we go for each other, the time we give to each other. Even though I realize that all of us is growing, some of my friends and I, we grow apart because we don't give each other the space or we don't value the space between us and with us. Mm-hmm. There's different values. Some people are once a month texters. Some people are once a quarter phone calls. And those people I'd call my brothers. And other people, uh, you know, I call on the weekly and give this like review and then we're like right at level with each other. There's this mature love that's happening that I, I thought, you know, love had rules and love had these, you know, like constructs like, oh, they don't talk to me anymore. They may not, may not be my friend anymore, mm-hmm. but it, it just, we don't have the space and, you know, it's hard to persevere through something for both of us when you have to respect how they see the relationship too. And so I think that's a higher value of respect and, and, and love. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. Sort of that view of like, if someone's not contacting me, they don't love me mm. anymore. There's a little bit of immaturity in there, right? Like that's, that's how we feel when we're younger. And you've talked about the maturing of, of how you're perceiving love. Yeah. And also the echo of that, sort of the inverse of that is the nature of ADHD and an area where we get judged a lot. Oh, you must not love me. You forgot my birthday. Oh, boy. I I talk to you every day. I tell you I love you every day. I suck at dates. I have ADHD. (laughs) (laughs) My dad still makes me say the months of the year like to him when I mess something up. He's like, go in order again. Start again. (laughs) I'm 38. I can I can use my phone now, okay? I don't have to say the dates in order. <laughs> I have Facebook to remind me of all the dates that are there. Yeah, right? And and we rely on them. We rely on so much. And I think that, you know, a lot of these tools are made for ADHD if we utilize them. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and even the, the other side of that where we don't call people for a while, not because they don't matter yeah. to us, we don't care about them, but because we got distracted, we didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Just like you need to have stuff on that farm table so you know. Out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. I, with my own sisters. Like if I haven't talked to my sisters in a little while, I'm like, okay, wow, really? It's been two months since I talked to my sister? I didn't, wouldn't have even realized that it had been two months because I've been just mm-hmm. going one day after another, after another, after another. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, it's, it's Easter and I haven't seen them since St. Patrick's Day or whatever. Now, when we get to out of sight, out of mind, sometimes there's drama in the family or sometimes you live in the same city. Mm-hmm. When you live in the same city, it, 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 I guess it's not out of this world to think that you would contact them more because you know they're in existence, that they may visit, that they, you, you, know, you have plans together. And it, it's a different relationship because you have an expectation to see them. And I guess there's, there's less of something. Maybe it's less vulnerability or, or it's you're like protecting your time with entertainment mm-hmm. uh, that way where you know that they're of use and maybe that's one thing is that like if you know you can have them in your life a little more you spend more attention on them well and there's some security there too right there's a little bit of like i don't feel so insecure in my relationships with my sisters that i feel like if i don't talk to them for a couple months they're <laughs> never gonna love me again you know right 
that immature perspective of love is also a more insecure perspective of love, right? Like, mm. Mm-hmm. If I haven't talked to that person, then they must not love me because I don't feel secure in that relationship. But it, those that are insecure seek security. Anyone, you know, it's a, kind of the polarity law. So walk me through the polarity law for those of us who don't know what that is. So it's the opposite. Uh, it's kind of like the Napoleonic complex. Uh, it, you see someone that isn't confident in who they are, they buy a huge car. Mm-hmm. And they, they show how rich they are. If you see a man with a big wad of cash in his wallet and he's, he's throwing it out, he is probably having financial difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> we know these people are like, oh, you must be rich. And, and, you know, to your eye, he wants you to believe how, how, what you see. You know, I, I like this one quote by uh, Will Ferrell. It stuck with me because it's, it's Will Ferrell. He's so funny. And they're like, how do, you, how do you play an idiot so well? And he's such a good comedian. And he says, I try not to be an idiot. I try to hide that I don't know something so well. And it makes him look like a bigger idiot. And, and that's how I see this. When, when somebody is saying, when they're, they're giving me too much information, I did not do this. And I was like, I didn't even ask for that. That's a red flag. When I'm coaching, I go, you told me you didn't do something and I didn't ask for that. What, let's talk about why you said that specifically to me. And it pulls out of them. They're like, well, I was protecting myself. From what? I didn't ask. I'm not accusing. I'm not judging. And then they, they, they find themselves in that vulnerable spot and they say, well, I guess I want you to believe something. And that's what it is. It's the story. The story we tell ourselves. The story we create because of the story we think we are. The story that we want to be true, mm. that may or may not be. Mm-hmm. That drive to make the story true that sometimes makes the story true and sometimes makes it really clear that the story is not true. Mm-hmm. And you're trying too hard and then we get that imposter syndrome creeping up. Yeah. And sometimes I guess that's a space where the imposter syndrome, you're like, oh, this is true. You know, it's, it, there are signs. There's a reason we have inner critics and imposter syndrome and it's because yourself is going to recognize what is authentic. I mean, that's probably the hardest thing to really battle with is saying, is this me? Right. Yeah, I tend to think, and I don't have any studies or anything to back this up. I'm more basing it on sort of my own experience. But but I tend to think that imposter syndrome is strongest at two points. It's strongest in the beginning when you're like, oh, I want to be an artist or whatever, right? So, and I'm really aware of how far away I am from being an artist. That's humble. Yeah. Yeah. There's that part because my taste is phenomenal, but my ability to execute on that taste is not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can really feel the difference. Right. And then I think it also gets really strong right before you're there. When you're like, oh, I can taste it. Like I'm there. I'm just not. There's like two steps left and then I'm going to feel like I got to where I want to be. Mm-hmm. And you get this like, but I'm not there. And can I make it? Can I go up those two steps? Because my skill level is almost to my taste. And what if I stop right here? What if this is where I plateau and I never actually get quite to the spot that I want to be at? Mm. And then hopefully you push through that and you get to where you want to be. And now you are where you want to be and you if you're anything like most of the people I know, you probably sit there for maybe a month and then all of a sudden imposter syndrome creeps up again because now you're like, yeah, but now I want to be over there. 
something. <laughs> you have this totally new goal. Yeah, yeah. I see three stages in here. And that, that this is a center stage. This is dopamine seeking. Mm-hmm. This is it. You're not yet getting that, that reward. And you'll never get that reward, that validation that, you're, that you are there, that you made it, that you can sit back, relax, retire, and be pleased with yourself. And it's okay. I think that's drive. Yeah. That's, that's part of what drive is. Uh, also, I see that, that in the beginning, when you start off, you're always humble. You're able to fail. You're, you're ready to fail. You're, you're underconfident. Yeah. And I, I love the underconfident. I love he who knows all knows nothing. That's brilliant. That means that you have a lot of space to go and you're excited to understand something and to fail. And then at the end, some people, they skip the, the middle part where they, they think they are almost there and they think they're there. Mm-hmm. And that's overconfident. Right. They don't know the score. That's something that, that I work with a lot with people with ADHD, whether we're talking about tests, we're talking about their numbers. They don't know the score of where they're trying to go. And they don't have a reasonable expectation. And they don't know if they made it or not. Yeah. They don't know if they're underconfident or overconfident or, or where to be. And it's like being in high school. That's exactly it. And you're like, you come home from school and your dad says, all right, so Evan, your teacher tells me you have a test next week. They, uh, he's an eye doctor and they always came to see him. He was like the famous eye doctor of the city. <laughs> and they saw him. And I was like, they, they, Mrs. Bragan would come in and, you know, talk about my grades. And I was in for recess the other day and I'd be like, nothing is safe. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so he'd say, so what are you getting in that class? Oh God, I don't know. But one, I don't have my file with me that tells me what grades I have. And two, I don't know the score. Yep. What do you, when they ask you in college, what are you going to get on that test? And what are you going to get in that class? I was like, I am trying hard and I'm guessing well, so I'm going to give you my best guess. But actually knowing the score, knowing that you have a 75 in, the, in that class and that if you get 100, you get an 85. You get a 90, you get an 81. And you know what you're aiming at and how many hours correlate to the win, that's the magic of what you're doing in college and, and learning how to learn and learning how to manipulate a system over saying, how's my output and what do I need to do this and how do I study effectively? What works, what doesn't? And knowing the score is such a part of this as adults too. We, we forget to be there. And a lot of the time when I work with someone, I, I talk about making a qualification into a quantification so that we can scale this. We can make it a number, a feeling, a rubric. And then it makes all the difference. So like, you know, I wasn't that scared then. I was scared six months ago when I was at an eight. Now I'm at a three and I can do this again. It, it, it gives them that, that different reframe where they see themselves again in a different perspective after knowing there's a number and whatever it is, something they're trying to do. So are you putting numbers on like their anxiety around a task? Are you putting numbers on the task itself? What does that look like? It could be uh, on the anxiety over a task, depending on what their agenda is that day. But more of it is on prioritizing and managing things that way. And, and a lot of what we use is imminent and important. Imminent, well, that has dates to it. That has seconds and numbers. That's easy to quantify. But importance, importance to who, to my boss, 
to, to me, to my colleague, to this client. And then we, then we have a harder time quantifying it. But there's still a, something behind it. Um, this means that you save your job or this means that you exceeded your job. Breaking it down for somebody, it, it helps them with making the idea of priority. As people with ADHD, we don't have the best sense of priority. We're, we're looking at what's flashy now, what's exciting now, what we love to do right now, passion, everything with passion. So this at least gives them this different level of saying how to measure it what am I feeling right now versus what is realistic in this sense of duties? Yeah. And this is something we can do, not just as parents, we, this is stuff we can teach our kids to do, right? Like mm. probably not to middle school or high school because elementary school stuff just doesn't matter as much. Mm. When it comes to academics, when it comes to extracurriculars, like how are you prioritizing this stuff? You're in the school play but you also have an essay to write and a midterm. Mm. Where are we going to prioritize stuff? I'm not saying the school play has to be at the bottom of that list. It might not have to be. It may be totally that should be the number one priority, but that means that you're going to get B's on that test and that paper as opposed to getting A's because you're prioritizing the school play over, over them, which is totally fine if that makes sense. If you're going to prioritize the school play and fail those tests and papers, not the best plan. Maybe we need to reprioritize stuff. I love how you spell that out in that kind of metacognition, thinking about your thinking with your kids. I can hear your voice right. you know, through that and what you do with them. That's so important for them to have a line of reasoning and, and to have flexible thinking that way and for you to accept their choices as their choices but also parent and saying, you're not getting Fs. I'm not allowing you to get an F. You're not going to do yeah. A good number of my clients are like middle school, high school age, right? Mm. And one of the things that's great about the new age of school is all of the data that we have. Because mm. when you and I were in school, we didn't know the score because we couldn't see the grade book. Mm -hmm. But now kids can see the grade book and they can find out how they're doing. I worked with one client. We did a whole big complicated math project, basically averaging out his grades to find out what he had to get in his midterms because mm -hmm. he had to get B's and A's to stay in the baseball program that he was in, that his parents were paying extra money for. It was extracurricular stuff. It had, wasn't even school. It was like baseball tutoring kind of a stuff, mm -hmm. but it was a lot of money. And they were like, if you're getting C's and lower, you're not doing this anymore. And we worked out the math on what he had to do. It was his physics grade was the number one problem. He had to get like a 98 on his physics midterm. Wow. In order to get it, in order to get a B because his grades weren't that good. And the reason for that was that he was missing assignments. Like he was turning assignments in late and not finishing them. They really added up too. Yeah, they really did. They bit him hard. His test grades were fine. It was his like homework and stuff that was undermining it, which is also useful data because now we know why. Like, it's not that you don't understand physics. It's that you're not doing the work at home to, to execute on these grades. And how can we navigate that? So, and that's all valuable too, for knowing the score and being able to put a number to it. How do we, what do we need to prioritize? Mm. Maybe you don't prioritize studying as much as you are, because if you actually do your homework, that's kind of studying and you'll push up those homework grades and that'll balance out the test scores. And that's in school. But in the real world, it plays out that way too, right? Mm. Like I make those kinds of equations all the time. 
am I going to the gym today? Am I going to the dojo today? Or do I have to let that go because I need to prioritize something else over that? Mm. That happened to me last week. I had to, I didn't go to the dojo at all last week, which was not good because not going to the dojo means not only am I extra stressed because I didn't get the decompression of the dojo, but I also feel guilty about the fact that I didn't go to the dojo. And so that increases my stress level. But we had a big camping trip for Cub Scouts and I had to be ready for that. So mm. it's the same kinds of prioritization stuff, just like you're talking about. Where are my numbers? Big picture, the dojo is way up there. It's at like a seven. But last week, the dojo dropped to a five because Cub Scout camping got jumped up to the seven. That was your dojo versus our Cub Scout meeting. Right, exactly. That was a big difference. That, that me, it, 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 you have different levels based on what your needs are, but your needs, there's somebody else's wants. Yep. When they see that your need is a want, not a need, that's, uh, that's compromised. Yeah. You have to lower some of those things and then come back to them. But at least you get them. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's where you're heading. You got a baby coming. <laughs> and, and babies are nothing but needs. That's all they are. <laughs> I need food. I need to poop. I need to sleep. <laughs> I need a hug. <laughs> I'm in for that. <laughs> and you'll know if, if they don't get them. <laughs> it's loud and piercing. <laughs> I recommend that if you can, um, trade nights with your wife. As, uh, you know, having... For sleeping. On, off, on, off. Yeah. 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 That made a huge difference from, from my wife and I. Because I every other night, I wasn't sleeping that great. But every other night, I was sleeping that. I was sleeping well. That's nice. So what we have, we have, you know, a couch. So it's a guest room couch bed. Mm -hmm. We're leaving it in there for that reason. Okay. So that, you know, somebody can lay there and have poor sleep in the baby's room. Mm -hmm. And... I want the baby to sleep in their room and not our room. Yep. I think that's really important for them to get used to that. I'm sure, mm -hmm. the, you know, I know kids sneak in the bed and everything, and that's going to happen. We're just developing that early, that boundary. That, we did the same thing. We got the boys slept in their own room. Mm. Every now and then, I had a nightmare. I can't fall asleep, that stuff. But, but even, even to, to, to today, if they want a like a snuggle hug before going to bed, that's that's happening in their room. And mm. with a smile on my face and a song in my heart, I'm gonna be bummed when that goes away. And it'll, it's coming because they're ten any minute now. They're gonna be like, "Dad, go away." <laughs> like, All right, not cool, Dad. Not cool. Yeah, you kind of smell terrible anyway, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, this smelly age, and they can't smell themselves. They don't know what smelly, sweaty boys smells like. Uh, they're not quite there, but they're getting there. <laughs> so just being mindful of time. Mm -hmm. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? You know, it, when I think about my experience as a past teacher and uh, I've been through dramas in my life, I, I think about the mantra, the only person you can control is yourself. And you're trying to work on behavior management with your children with a classroom of children, with an unruly client customer or a crazy person on the street, you're the only person that can't control yourself and they can't control you and you can't control them. And that, that gives me peace of mind. How so? Well, 
they can't make me angry, sad. They can't really tick me off. I get to choose whether I'm ticked off or not. And once they have that ownership, they're saying, no, now I am ticked off. I decided to be ticked off. I have a reason. And I can't <laughs> blame them. And I can't, I, I can't chase something that's not there. It's within me. And when I want to be happy, I, I decide that now is the time to be happy. If I don't, I live in New York City. There are plenty of times somebody tries to make me unhappy or runs me over with a taxi. And it, they tried. People are really. And you have to create this mindfulness set. And sometimes, I, you know, we're walking uh, in, in traffic. We are the traffic. And I have to remember that I don't have to be the fastest car in traffic. I need to get where I'm going and not let the people around me control my pace. Mm -hmm. I'm allowed to look up at the buildings and relax a little bit, listen to music, have a phone conversation, sit where people don't normally sit and, and relax a bit because I choose to relax. And it, all these external factors, whether it's a city or it is you know, somebody that, that we're talking kids, they want you to be upset sometimes. Mm -hmm. You choose whether you react or you respond. Mm -hmm. And I know with ADD, it's really hard because my impulse takes a little control. And I have compulsions to, to protect and to be afraid of somebody invading my, my control and my space, but they can't control me. As a substitute teacher, there were plenty of people that wanted to control whether I was angry or upset. As a special needs teacher, the children would want to control a, a situation, and you know they they could not control some of the situations. They could not make me angry enough to to react poorly, although they tried. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.